You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. The following program contains graphic material, including offensive language. Viewer discretion is advised. Wait a minute. Do you still think politics is boring? Well, not when you can say fun words like cacus. Yes, it's fun words like cacus and more. With the intellectual, intersexual, and intersectional, Nicole Sandler on NicoleSandler.com. That's actually an old intro, uh, that, uh, but the word intersectional is in there. And now, you know, the governor of Florida has a problem with it. So you better believe I'm going to use that a lot <laughs> from now on. Um, all right. Welcome to a Wednesday. I am so sorry about yesterday. The gremlins, I'm telling you, it wasn't just in here. It was everywhere. David had them. Uh, they were they they came out of the woodworks yesterday. I guess something or someone thought I should not be on the air yesterday, so I wasn't. Um, but here we are, back today, and and a, a, an important show coming up. Philip Bump will be here. He's got a new book out called "The Aftermath: The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America." Um, so we will get to that solar flares i believe so um um and uh okay joe i will unblock you on twitter just you know what don't what don't tell me to do something that's common sense i've been doing this for many many years and when someone says hey maybe you should test it before you go on the air yeah think it was working fine yesterday and then it didn't. So, you know, just don't do that. Anyway, I, you know, I was having a rough day yesterday, and I think it was a number of, of, of factors. One, we lost a member of our community this weekend. And I think that Joy Williams' death hit me um, a lot harder than, than I realized. Um, having a hard time with it. Because, again, somebody who... I've known now virtually, I've never, never met Joy in person, but she, she was a listener going back from the, um, the Air America days back when I was on live late at night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. And I would use Tom Hartman's chat room 
uh, because Air America didn't have one. Joy was part of that group. So, um, you know, I, I'm coming to terms with it. I, I'm, I, I feel our mortality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Spocko just saw. So, you know, I got a call from Tom, Joy's husband, maybe an hour before I hit the air yesterday. And it, it was yesterday, Monday, Monday. Sorry, the days are running together. Yesterday, now yesterday was also a tough day because yesterday was the fifth anniversary of the shooting here on Parkland. And you know, this is my community. This is where I live. And in fact, I had um, another friend of the show, another family member, Dar, who's been around for a long time, um, was down here in South Florida. And I said, yeah, let's get together. We can certainly do that. And we just went out for a ride. And and the thing is, um, oh, wow, Caroline said, many of us have been with you since the Air America days. I actually remember when you were with Mark and Brian. So I've been doing this for a long time. So Caroline, it's good to know. Thank you. They've been around so long. Um, so yesterday I was all, so when Dar was here, we went out for a ride and um, I took her by, you know, we went by Coral Glades High School where Allison, my daughter, went to school. And then we drove by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas so I could show her, you know, the proximity in this community to where we were. And then on the way back, it's like a big circle. I took her past um, Terra Vela High School, which is where... My daughter sat in a classroom in the off-campus learning center with the Parkland shooter. And so, you know, all of that, it's been on my mind for days, obviously, coming up on this anniversary. And then, um, actually, I want to show you, today's Miami Herald, the front page of today's Miami Herald, has a photograph, I should actually unfold it because there's more, of the 17 people 17 lives that were taken at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School five years ago yesterday. Now, why this wasn't on the front page of the paper yesterday, I don't know. But, okay. Um, It's there today. Also today, a lockdown at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You know, maybe should we be, should we be, Grateful that it wasn't yesterday? Uh, No, we shouldn't be grateful at all about any of this. From the South Florida Sun Sentinel, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School went on lockdown for more than two two hours this afternoon, one day after the community marked the fifth year since the mass shooting that left 17 dead. The Broward Sheriff's Office confirmed that it was investigating a possible threat, but emphasized that no one appeared to be in any danger. Sheriff's spokesperson said in an emailed statement, quote, no immediate threat has been identified at this time and students and staff are safe. But they were locked down for two hours. The lockdown, which started at about 1.50 p.m. and was lifted at about 3.30 p.m., generated a wave of concern on social media, you think? Where people were quick to note the date and the atmosphere of dread that continues to hover over the Parkland campus, whenever public safety is in question. So, you know, this is the backdrop. And then um, <clears throat> today, um, there's there's another story about Florida schools and the idiot 
who is uh, inhabiting the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Governor Moron death sentence, who his latest is, I'm just going to read this to you because I can't paraphrase it because it's so insane. Broward, Broward County, where I live, Broward school libraries will remove a sexually explicit teen graphic novel that the governor Ron DeSantis administration accused of being pornography. The book is called Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being a Human. And the paper goes on to tell us that this book was in the libraries of three schools, Fort Lauderdale High School in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale High School, Nova High in Davie, and Coral Glades High School in Coral Springs. That's the school that Allison went to. Broward School District spokesperson said, once we received a complaint, we initiated our review process of the material. During the review, the book will be removed from our schools. The complaint came from the Broward chapter of the socially conservative group Moms for Liberty and its affiliate Moms for Libraries. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, the person, let's see, DeSantis's press secretary tweeted out something. Pornography in the classroom. This is my Ron DeSantis voice. Pornography in the classroom is a real and ongoing issue from the book's own description. Covering relationships, friendships, gender, sexuality, anatomy, body image, safe sex, sexting, jealousy, rejection, sex education, the first in graphic novel form. Let me let me just correct the writer of this article. It's not a graphic novel. It may be a graphic book, but a novel, novel implies fiction. A novel is a work of fiction. I get that they use the term graphic novel to to describe these books that are written with you know with illustrations. It's not a novel. It's an informative book for teenagers. It's not pornography. Let me read to you a little more. It says, the book, Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex Relationships and Being a Human, isn't recommended for young children, according to the publisher Random Penguin Random House and their website, which said it is appropriate for grades nine and higher. High schools start at grade nine. 9, 10, 11, 12. It's fully appropriate for this age group. The book poses these questions and provides answers, according to the publisher. Is what I'm feeling normal? Is what my body is doing normal? Am I normal? How do I know what are the right choices to make? How do I know how to behave? How do I fix when I make a mistake? So all of these questions are answered in here, and they're and and they pulled it off the shelves. In Florida schools, a review in the School Library Journal, which describes itself as the premier publication for librarians and information specialists who work with children and teens, praised the book. It says, don't be afraid. Yes, there are drawings of naked bodies in this book, mostly in the body image section. And yes, readers will learn about some of the ways the human body is wired for pleasure. And the detailed drawings of genitals are not solely in service of explaining how babies are made. But every panel of this book, every 
anatomical drawing, every conversation over tea or in a tent is loaded with crucial information about consent, respect, consideration, and boundaries. The information is conveyed through a, quote, magnificently varied cast of characters who, quote, receive reassurance, information, and practical advice. But Ron DeSantis's administration pulled it from school shelves, from school library shelves, because one person complained and said it's pornography. Well, you know what? I don't want some Bible-clutching bitch from some group who calls themselves, what do they call themselves? Uh, I lost it now. It doesn't really matter. Some hate hate group, which is what I think they are, a hate group. Um, oh, moms for liberty and moms for libraries. Well, you're not my mom and you're not my kid's mom. And how dare you say what my kid should or shouldn't be able to read? I, I'm astound. I'm not astounded. I'm disgusted. I'm not surprised by anything this idiot does, but I am disgusted. Um, and so, yeah. The free speech organization Penn America's nationwide index of school book bans covering the 12 months from July 1st, 2021 through June 30th, 2022, found 41 instances of gender queer, another book, being banned, including in Brevard, Orange, Osceola, and Pinellas counties in Florida. It's perfectly normal, had seven bannings during that time, they reported, including Polk and Walton counties in Florida. Let's talk about it. Wasn't on that list, but Broward's Moms for Liberty chapter has identified more than 20 books that they want removed from libraries. You know what, Moms for Liberty? You spend your own money and send your kid to some bullshit private school and leave our children alone. This is infuriating. Rhonda Racist is right. And now the the editorial In today's Miami Herald, the headline reads, DeSantis is a master of distraction. He may be Florida's governor, but when is he going to govern? And it goes on at length about um, his authoritarian ways and that he's not doing his job. Instead, I'm paraphrasing, he's throwing shit against the wall, more shit against the wall every day, and he sees what sticks. And he doesn't even care if it sticks or not. He just wants it to not um, be offensive to his way of thinking, which is just astounding to me. You know, the, the way Ron DeSantis operates is he says that, uh, uh, you know, it's indoctrination or, you know, it's, it's pornography well, it's indoctrination if it doesn't go along with exactly his views on how how the state should be governed. It's opposite world. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into opposite world again another day. But I see our guest has arrived. And I'm very, very happy to welcome um, Philip Bump to the show today. Philip Bump is a uh, columnist at the Washington Post. He actually writes a weekly newsletter called How to Read This Chart. And that skill comes in really handy 
when you read Phil's new book. It's called The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Um, Philip Bump, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Yours, my pleasure. Um, uh, so, you know, you, you do have a lot of graphs in the book and they, they, uh, so your, your column does help. Um, I want to start with this, this one graph, um, that is in the book. I, I pulled it out of there. This one's in black and white. What you publish in the paper is usually in, in color. This, you say, is the, basically the shape of the baby boomers in, this country. Um, can you tell us what this graph represents? Yeah, sure. So essentially, the darker parts of the graph that you see are the baby boom. And so this is the percentage of the population that is the baby boom uh, over time. And you can see it starts in 1940. Uh, so this is the uh, 1940 uh uh, you know what? Actually, that's incorrect. It starts in 1945. I was like, wait, why are there boomers in 1940? <laughs> uh, this is, this is, uh, it starts in 1950. So this is every five years. I was thinking it was every 10 years. It's been a while. Gotcha. Um, so it starts in 1950. So that's the, the percentage of baby boomers in the population in 1950 is that relatively small gray area. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can see the, the under 18 population, which is that lower third of the graph, really swells as the baby boom uh, generation uh, becomes larger, uh, as, as obviously more babies are born. Then as it ages, it makes up a large chunk of the population moving through time uh, until you get to the point at which the boomers start to turn 65. So that 65 and up population. It is now a large chunk of that uh, is made up of baby boomers at this point in time because boomers are starting to reach that age. Starting uh, interesting to. Thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, most boomers at this point are, are, are uh, 65 or over. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, it just shows how the effect of the boom itself over time in, in the American population. Right. Now, I'm a baby boomer. Um, mm-hmm. I was born in November of 1959, and I always talk about, hey, well, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. Actually, my sister, my younger sister, who was born in July of 1964, mm-hmm. I think she's really at the tail end the of the baby tail, boom. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but still, I'll take it because a lot of the things that define the baby boomers, as we talk about them as, in, as, a, as a group, really don't apply to me. Then again, I'm not also, I'm not your average 63-year-old woman in that, you know, I come out of rock radio. So I, I think what you do and how you live kind of paves the way for you. But as it turns out, as America has aged, the baby boomers who, when I think of the baby boomers, I think of the Woodstock generation. I think of, you know, and that was still 10 years ahead of me, um, but they've gotten much more conservative. Now, have they actually, or have has the rest of the country just gotten a little more progressive, perhaps? No, I mean, obviously, there are different ways of measuring conservative and liberal. One can look at partisanship. One can look at measures of ideology, which are a little vaguer. Uh, it is the case, I think it's safe to say, that the baby boom generation has gotten more Republican than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are more likely to vote with the Republican Party than they were when they were young. Uh, there is this understanding in America that's actually fairly poorly supported by the social science evidence that people naturally get more conservative as they age. You know, the, the, there isn't, as I said, a lot of research on that. And it, that, too, was subjective. What do you mean by conservative, right? Conservative today doesn't necessarily mean what, I mean, it doesn't mean what I meant in 1820, for God's sake, right? Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about conservatives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the baby boom, the important thing about the baby boom, the, 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 
the most important thing about the baby boom that people should keep in mind is it's a massive, massive, massive generation that, that just reshaped America as it aged uh, and now is reshaping what it means to be older in America. Uh, but a subset of that is because it's so massive, it's you cannot paint it with a very broad brush. There right. are some ways in which the baby boom is fairly consistent, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, but, you know, it, the baby boom is about about as many Democrats as Republicans in the baby boom generation, slightly more Republicans. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons that the conservative aspect of the baby boom has a particular focus in, in culture and society today uh, that also happen to get into. Gotcha. gotcha. So, so what made you decide to write a book about the baby boom? Is it because we're now age, we're the, the, all the, the, the doom and gloom, the scare tactics, you know, uh, Social Security and Medicare are going to go broke because so many people are going to hit retirement age at the say the baby boom. And now we're all, those of us at the tail end are approaching 65. Um, and, and so maybe we're more of a drag on the economy, but you also talk about the vast wealth that is, um, uh, held by this baby boom population. So I guess we go back to what made you decide to write a book about the baby boomers. The original impetus for it was that I wanted to evaluate. It seemed obvious, even when I was pitching the book back in late 2020, early 2021, that there was this increased tension between baby boom generation in particular and younger generations. And I wanted to explore that. I wanted to see the extent to which that was an accurate reflection of uh, you know, if there were real, if there's a real basis to that tension, if it was, you know, mostly based in the, the standard intergenerational tension that we see when you have old people and young people. Uh, and as I explored the book and as I sort of dug around, you know, I, the, the pitch to Viking who ended up publishing the book was fairly vague. And it was just sort of like, you know, I'm going to sort of explore this and see what we come up with. And what I discovered is that the baby boom generation, the scale of the baby boom generation is just misunderstood. But it really is the case that the baby boom generation has been the focus of so much attention and energy and money for so long that now they're actually having to compete with that, with younger generations are having to compete for resources mm-hmm. that they haven't had to do before. And I think that, in addition to a number of other things, uh, is contributing to the tensions that we see in the moment. And that really, I think, is at the heart of the book. Right. And and obviously, it is it is something that that is worth exploring. There are millions of us. In fact, you talk about the sheer size and scale of the baby boom generation. Now, for the, I think anybody who's listening knows, but the baby boomers, it was this surge in population after the end of World War II. Is that what happened? The soldiers came home and everyone got jiggy with it or something and started popping out babies? Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, the baby boom lasted 19 years. That's a long time mm, for jigginess, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yes. um, it, there were a number of factors that came into play. The book honestly doesn't get a lot into that because there have been other, you know, analyses of why the baby boom occurred uh, that, you know, go into more detail on that. But it, essentially, a few things happened. One is that the country had emerged into this period of, of both, you know, broad self-confidence, but also economic uh, growth and economic uh, good fortune, which made it easier to have kids. There was a cultural force that just, you know, that there was an aspect of it that was just everyone's having kids these days so let's have kids right mm. you know i mean there, there are all these things that sort of piled onto each other that really triggered this boom in in having kids it, you know there were limitations that had been restricted i mean just you know the, the 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 growth in the economy made it so you could have a good job and you you know you, you your family structure could be such that you could have a number of children you know it, essentially the boom is defined by the period in which those were the those were the guiding forces of of becoming a parent in the United States, and when that ended in the early 1960s, so did the boom. 
So, so the just the 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 sheer number of births dropped precipitously, like in the mid '60s, and then it was back to a more normal level as opposed to the. 19 years or so yeah, you right. said before that where there right. was this just a, a I, I mean you have charts there are there are charts in fact you have an article you have a, a column in today's washington post um let me let me pull it up you uh, that that deals with the gen zers now my daughter mm-hmm. i guess is gen z she's 23 she was born in 1999 um right. and uh, i i definitely see the differences but you um you the your piece today is headlined it's time to formalize gen z as the lockdown generation now i just went mm-hmm. off on a rant i'm in south florida i'm in a town called coral springs where we're joined at the hip with Parkland. So yesterday was the fifth anniversary of the shooting there, yeah. and it all comes back. There was a lockdown at that school today because people suck, because we're, because we're a gun-crazed society, and everything's broken, and I could go, I could go down that road, but I won't. Yeah. Um, but so the Gen Zers, here's what I see, and it's interesting. You, you want to call them the lockdown generation, not because of covid only, but because right. from the time they were little kids, these kids had to do uh, shooter drills in school. They've known lockdowns. I never had that in school. We had fire drills. This right. is this is something new. So is that where the idea for lockdown generation comes from? Yeah, and I didn't originate it. Uh, I, I had first heard that actually when I was researching the book. Someone had made reference to that, and I thought that was interesting. I went back and looked. The first uh, it's the occasion in which I can find it being used was actually after the Navy Yard shooting in D.C. Mm-hmm. in 2013 in the Atlantic. Uh, and it is, essentially that piece is aiming to do two things. Uh, the first is to help people understand that generational identity is vague and a construct and doesn't actually have any meaning. And, you know, and that Gen Z in particular is stupid because it's Gen X is my, my generation. And right. that was followed by Gen Y. And then that became the millennials because that's right. a better name. And Gen X stuck with us because, you know, X. So, you know, these guys are just, you know, they're anti-establishing you know, all the stupid slacker things with Gen X actually sort of fit to it. Right. Um, uh, so then you had Gen Y, which became the millennials, because that was a more apt descriptor. But since G- before that transition happened, then the next generation is called Gen Z. Uh, and so Gen Z isn't, there's nothing about Gen Z, which is actually descriptive. It is just a placeholder name in the same way that Gen Y was for the millennials. Uh, and as such, uh, so part of it was just to elevate that point, which obviously is included in the book. But then part of it was just to, to point out that lockdown is a, is a fair descriptor for this generation, that they have been subject to, that their, their, their lifespans do overlap with all of these school shootings that have occurred. Um, and as well as the COVID pandemic, that the mm-hmm. group that was most affected by the, the closures during the pandemic, according to uh, an MTV AP poll that came out in 2021, was Gen Z. Um, so it's X, you know, do I think that this is going to be that people will be talking about lock, lockdowners in 10 years time? Not necessarily, but I think it's a good way to raise both of those issues as a way to, you know, as things that affect the generation. Right. Now, now you had this chart in that article today. It's taken from Pew Research, their generational right. boundaries. And you have mm-hmm. Gen Z ending somewhere in here. What follows Gen right. Z? Well, that's the next question, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, some people call them Generation Alpha, uh, which is just sort of, you know, like we're going like hurricanes. Yeah, right. It's just, you know, it's all um, But, you know, that's what my kids are. So I'm eager to see where it ends up. 
Okay. Um, so I, again, these are arbitrary labels, but it's a way right. to separate the different generations. And I get it. I mean, Gen X right. didn't mean anything either. And they seem to almost be the forgotten gen, yours, because it goes, sure, sure. all the talk mostly goes from baby boomers to the millennials. Is that because the millennials are such a huge group as well? Yeah, that's exactly why. The Gen X simply wasn't that large. And, you know, in part, I think it's because Gen X never actually contested for power with, with the baby boomers. The baby boomers were our parents, uh, you know, often sometimes grandparents, and we just sort of trailed along behind them. You know, we, our, our generational identity was to some extent reactionary to them, whereas the millennials have a more well-formulated generational identity. All this stuff is very vague, and these are very broad descriptors for large groups of people. Sure. With that caveat said, uh, but yeah, I think that's why. Um, and you know, every time I have one of these conversations, I, some Gen Xer will pop up and be like, "What about Gen X?" And she's like, "A, I am Gen X, and B, I thought our whole thing is we didn't care, man." So lay off. <laughs> I hear you. We're speaking with Philip Bumpy. He's the columnist for the Washington Post. This is your first book, The Aftermath. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, is. congratulations on it. It's it's fascinating. It's you know it's just really interesting. And I would think that people at different ages who read it might well definitely come at it with a different perspective. My whole thought. Look, I'm someone who, again, uh, never. chronological age didn't really bug me. I don't feel 63 years old. I still feel the same I've always felt. Um, Mm -hmm. And however, um, I look at what's happening, you know, in our world today and I'm fed up. Um, I was, I was, um, you know, I, I was angry that Dianne Feinstein wouldn't say that she's retiring. It's time for the next generation to take over, I think. The House, the Democratic leadership in the House, the average age was, you know, 183 or something like that. Nancy Pelosi did a great job in her time, but her time was up, I think, a few years ago. And my attitude was, we screwed it all up. These young kids, finally, we're seeing this Gen Z generation stepping up the way the millennials didn't. And they're active and they're organizing and they vote and they care and they put together March for Our Lives and they're involved. I think it's time to let them take the mantle because I think the baby boomers let them down. Um, and I never really, I, I didn't feel that from them until this whole okay boomer thing started. Mm. Now, again, as I'm a boomer, I'm not right there. I'm not on TikTok. Can you explain what that was about for old codgers like me? Yeah, I, I can explain it very specifically and explain it sort of metaphorically what it was about. So specifically what it was about is that this app TikTok uh, allows you to sort of take someone else's video and append your own commentary on it, right? So, you know, they could show a clip of us talking and then someone could comment and be like, yeah, and then they were wrong about, you know, and then, then that's the, the video. What this allowed was you had a bunch of boomers who were adopting TikTok, uh, you know, several years ago. And the, the standard pattern when people adopt new technologies, they just sort of find their way around. They don't necessarily understand the norms and the, and the, the culture of that new app. And so boomers were doing what's, what the young people would call cringy stuff, which is just kind of like, you know, just lame videos of, of various <laughs> things that they were, they were kind of corny. Uh, and so... That was frustrating to people who were active on TikTok in part because it was like all these people, you know, it's like someone tromping in your garden. Like, come on, man. Like, that's not how we do things around here. But also in part just because there is this generational tension. So they there was this very 
bad song. It's <laughs> just like aggressively noisy song called OK Boomer uh, that people started slapping onto the end of Boomer videos, you know, as a response. Uh, and it was just, you know, it's, it's just a very noisy song and it made the boomers very mad, which the, the young people absolutely adored because that was right. the entire intent was to troll them, right? So that's specifically what happened. And then OK Boomer became this broader cultural meme in part because of this article by Tara Lawrence in the New York Times. Metaphorically, what was happening was that you had this group of older people who grew up in the 1960s and 70s. They were young people. You know, they could certainly contested for power with the older generation, uh, but there were gatekeepers. You couldn't just simply, you know, you couldn't be an agitator and be heard by the entire, you, you, the odds that you landed on Walter Cronkite's, you know, evening broadcast were low. And even so, Walter Cronkite had decided to do that. That's not the case now. Now it is the case that any young person has the potential to blow up and be seen by the nation on, on social media. That's right. And so there was, not only was there this direct interaction that was from frustrating, but it was also the case that it has consistently been the case that older people have to contest with the voices of younger people in a way that wasn't the case 50 years ago. They have to see it. Like you can be present in front of them at any point in time, uh, thanks to social media. And that is a shift in the in the power dynamic between old and young. And I think that added the frustration for older people as well. Very much so. And, uh, you know, and when I realized this was happening, it's like, wow, they hate us, but maybe it's justified because again, we screwed it up. Now, before earlier today, as I'm preparing for the show, I'm reading your book and I, I hear lines from songs and Mm. there's an artist who actually was a friend of mine back in in the 90s when i was doing music radio in la and his name was kevin gilbert and he had this song called goodness gracious and i'm just going to play a few seconds of it because he addresses this i guess this conflict goodness gracious we came in at the end no sex that isn't dangerous no money left to spend There was a line I think I cued in too too far, unless it comes up right here. Now, um, where he talks about um, uh, the goodness gracious, uh, the uh, hold on, I do have, I think I have the lyrics up here. Um, my generation's lost; they burned down all our bridges before we had a chance to cross. Is it the winter of our disconnect or just an early frost? And then. Um, uh, uh, goodness gracious of apathy, I sing. The baby boomers had it all and wasted everything. Now recess is almost over and they won't get off the swing. I love the line about where the cleanup crew for parties we were too young to attend. I feel like my generation did that. I I I feel that. And And actually, Kevin Gilbert wrote that almost 30 years ago. He's been gone since 1996. So this is nothing new. It's just, I think, as as the baby boomers maybe get older and the Gen Zers come into their own, they're realizing, you know what, we can take over now. Let us go. We got this. You go go home and enjoy your grandchildren. 
Yeah, no, I mean, the, the book that spawned the name Generation X, you know, by Douglas Copeland came out in 1990 or 1991. And it was exactly that sentiment. If you read that book now, you see a lot of the same complaints that are being issued by the, the, the you know, the, the Gen X, as it was called then, against the older generation, baby boomers in particular, that you see now, like, I can't afford a house. Like, that's a common, that's a theme in the book Generation X, right? The difference is that Generation X wasn't large enough to actually test for power in the younger generation is. So the reason that we're seeing this heightened focus on this now is there are simply more people who are making, you know, in the same way that the baby boom defines stuff by being so large. We're seeing the same thing happen now with the younger generation because they too are large. There's almost as many millennials at age 40 as there were boomers when they were age 40. Huh. Uh, and so we have this real contesting for power that didn't happen with Gen X. But you're right, this, these themes are consistent over time. Yes, and and they make sense. And as an older person now, um, I, I want to see what these younger Kids, they're not kids anymore, what this younger generation can do. Look, I was struck today um, by a video, maybe it was last night that I saw, of a, of a young woman, she's 21 years old, who was across the street at Michigan State when the shooting happened the other night. And she talked about this being her second mass shooting because she survived Sandy Hook. It, this is a reality that my generation didn't have to deal with. We had other things. We had the Vietnam War. But then again, these kids, most of them have not known life without war. Even after, you know, the 90s, we went through a very peaceful time. So they've got a lot of challenges here. You talk about in the book, uh, the aftermath, Phil Bump, um, how the, the sheer size and scale of the baby boom generation, but also how it reshaped America as it aged. Um, and we got to look at, you know, Medicare came into being at the beginning of the baby boom, but were they realizing the need that this generation was going to have as we aged and, you know, needed to be taken care of medically? No, I mean, you know, there was the, the New Deal was a reaction to the Great Depression more right. than the baby boom, right? Right. So, yeah, it is the case, though, that the baby boom, in the same way that it shaped everything in American politics and culture, shapes you know, government programs, right? So one of the things that we're seeing now is this massive drawing down of social security funds, right? And that's because there's so many more people who are retiring and they, they, they helped inflate the size of the fund as they were, as they were, you know, working and, and contributing to that. And now they're drawing it down, which is exactly how the system's supposed to work. The question is, you know, whether we can manage a soft landing of that or not. So, but yeah, this is, this is the same pattern that the, the scale of the baby boom is making America deal with things in a different way. I, I do want to push back on something uh, that you said there. You, you raised this issue of the mass shootings and you've said a couple of times now that, you know, your generation messed things up. And, and I think it's important to recognize and it's easy to be sort of defeatist about it, but it's important to recognize the fights that the baby boom fought, even progressive baby boomers, those fights just were different and were addressing different needs than young people today. There wasn't a need to address mass shootings to the same extent when baby boomers were young. There wasn't a need to address climate change because we didn't recognize the science of that. There wasn't a need to, to, to fight for LGBTQ equality because that simply wasn't on anyone's radar screen, right? So these were, you, your generation was fighting a different set of fights, even progressives were fighting a different set of fights. And right. so it's easy to be like, look, we, we dropped the ball on this and you know it's, i can certainly see how you would make that argument but it's important to recognize that you were involved in other fights at the time like getting out of the vietnam war for god's sake right like, uh, that was abortion more rights right abortion right, rights sure. that happened when i was in in middle school and high school um right. so maybe i should be pointing a finger at the millennials <laughs> for being apathetic hey, man, you can point any fingers you want but you know you just need to recognize that people a lot of people are trying to do the do the right thing right gotcha um so all right so there's differences in each generation, even though they're obviously they're not so cut and dried because right. they're 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 false constructs. They're just 
they were just, you know, years. We make them up. Yeah. We make them up. So, um, but how are boomers, do you think, different from today's, from the Gen Z or the Alpha or whatever we're going to call the next generation? What, what, I mean, I see a lot of differences. I'm curious to know what you think are the differences here. Yeah, there are some key ones. And, you know, it's, we always run the risk of, of painting with two broader brushes. As I said earlier, you know, the baby boom is a very, very, there are a lot of people in a baby boom. An interesting fact about the baby boom is it continued to grow until about the year 2000 simply because of immigration. But that immigration also made the boom more diverse than it was at the outset. The boom began at a period when immigration was restricted by law in the United States. Uh, the average immigrant when the baby boom began was somebody's grandparent that had come over from Europe, right. you know, in the 20s. 1910s, 1920s. Um, and so the baby boom was very, very heavily white uh, in a way that younger generations very much are not. And so part of the tension that we see that's based on race and immigration stems from the fact that baby boomers see America changing it, the way it looks, literally, uh, with younger generations and and skepticism about that sort of change that that obviously has taken root and fostered uh, on the political right. Uh, but there are other ways in which older Americans and younger Americans are different. All younger Americans are less likely to participate in institutions. They're less likely to go to church. They're less likely to be married. They're less likely to have been in the military, in part because there's no draft. Uh, they are less likely to be members of political parties. They're also more likely to have gone to college and mm-hmm. to be better educated. Uh, they're more likely to live in cities. And a lot of these things, you know, you're Listeners are going to recognize a lot of overlap with political tendencies based on some of those differences. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the young generation is so much more democratic than the older generation, because it has these distinguishing characteristics. You know, it's interesting that you say there's so much more democratic. That's, I guess, small right. D democratic, um, because you said no, that's big D. OK, but they're less likely to belong to a political party. Right. right. My yes, generation they, they, didn't really do no party affiliation as they right. do now. No, you're absolutely right. So when when I talk about they are more likely to be Democratic with a capital D, I mean, as opposed to being Republican, you're right that they are more likely to not be members of parties. But even though most most independents in the United States still vote with one party or the other, and right. they very heavily vote with the Democrats. Gotcha. And in fact, um, we saw this in the really in the 2022 midterms. There was a big question mark there. It could have gone either way, but the, the, the young people actually came out and voted and they voted D, no? No? No. We don't actually have data on that yet. Ah. There's a group, there's a group, I hate that, this is actually That's a little okay. pet peeve of mine, I'm sorry you stumbled into my field. Uh, there is a group that does advocacy for young people that has been pushing this idea that they have data basically based on exit polls, which are really not good at subcategories of, of democratic analysis. They're trying to push this idea that young people did increase their vote. I mean, necessarily they did just because younger people are making up more of the population now. Uh, but there's not really good evidence at this point to show that they had really an effect on the 2022 election really? the way it's been promoted. Huh. So. Oh, that's interesting. Then, then I guess some older people got you know, a a conscience and said, (laughs) we can't let this happen to this country because we were, we were close to going over the edge. I thought, um, again, I don't want to put my, my ideology on you, but it it was looking pretty scary there that the, you know, the election deniers might be taking on more greater roles of power and, and disassembling this very uh, tenuous experiment we still have going on. Yeah, but I mean, like, consider what you're saying, right? You are a baby boomer woman uh, who recognizes this threat that was being posed, and it was a threat that was that was accentuated by Biden in the closing days of the of the race. And it seems very clear that there are a lot of people who are sort of, eh, I don't love what the economy is doing. I don't love 
Biden, but I am worried about January 6th, and I am worried about the threat to democracy who landed on the side of Democrats, a lot of suburban women, the college-educated white suburban women who have been the factor that has been an obstruction to the Republican Party since the onset of the Trump era, that a lot of those folks said, you know what, I'm still going to vote Democratic. I don't, again, don't love Biden, don't like how things are going in the moment, uh, but I'm more worried about this thing, and that helped offset what otherwise were some strong historic indicators for the GOP. But as as we move further into the 20s um you said that that we're getting more progressive or did i read that wrong i said that i mean there's this is this is there's a lot of nuance here so i hesitation there is just to figure out how i can best encapsulate it since there's basically a chapter in the book that looks this there's a lot of question about the extent to which the young population today that votes much more heavily Democratic than Republican is going to continue to do so in the future. And it depends on a few things. One of them being whether or not the Republican Party adjusts to represent, to better represent the demands and requests of young people, right? I mean, they essentially, after the 2012 election, made the determination, there was this autopsy that was completed, and they said, you know what we're going to do? We need to reach out more to non-white Americans. We need to expand our base. And Donald Trump came along in 2014, 2015, said, or we could just dive in deeper on this. And that worked. It worked in 2016, did not work in 2020, uh, didn't work in 2018, didn't work very well in 2022. And so now after 2022, Ronald McDaniel had the Republican Party saying, maybe we need to expand our base to other people. And at some point, if the Republican Party wants to get votes, they're going to have to appeal to these voters, right? Because they're making up an increasing portion of the electorate. I'm not sure this time frame in which that happens. Uh, it is the case that Republicans sense some opportunity that they may think that the education divide is more salient, that people who haven't gone to college versus those who have is more of a factor than uh, race uh, in, in these considerations that maybe you can peel away black and Hispanic voters in, in that way and manage to hang on to coalition. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one would expect as America gets more uh, diverse, like in Georgia, uh, you know, Georgia's population has, has shifted and that's helped turn it blue, but it hasn't happened in Florida. And Florida's population has got much more diverse too, and well, it's gone hard right, right? So, well, <laughs> you know, it's... It's, yeah, it's hard to predict. Let's go there. I mean, we're 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 packing. We're leaving Florida because it's gone so far right. And I, and I grew up down here uh, mm-hmm. from the time I was 11, went to college and at the University of South Florida. And now I see what's happening in this state. And I, I'm hoping that the rest of the country is really paying attention because it's it's. I think it's an attack on democracy. I think um, we've got a really dangerous man. Now, I, I don't know if you heard at the beginning, I was talking about the, the latest is um, he had removed from three Broward County, where I live, bluest county in the state of Florida, three high school libraries, um, a book called Let's Talk About It. Uh, it's a guide. It's it's for teenagers to talk about sex and their bodies and sexuality and everything that goes along with it. It appears to be very well written, very well reviewed, recommended by, you know, the all the educational. It's let's talk about it. The teen's guide to sex relationships and being a human. And they got one complaint from some parents group and they removed it from the schools. This is the direction he's going. He's openly racist. I mean, now it wasn't enough to stop this AP program in African-American studies. Now he's talking about because he doesn't like the way the school, the college board is reacting to him doing away with all AP courses in Florida schools. Um, This is this is a giant leap backwards. 
And it's frightening to me. You know, you talk about in the book what comes next, politics, economics, culture, housing, voting. Um, I, I see kids pushing back. I know there was a protest in Tallahassee today about this uh, African-American studies course. Um, I know you're not predicting the future, but where do you see what what does come next? Well, I mean, uh, broadly speaking, uh, you know, there's a lot of us. Uh, Second half of the book focusing on you know, what happens next in the yep. United States. But I, yeah, again, it's sort of hard to distill. Uh, this specific question of Florida, I mean, it's very obvious that Ron DeSantis wants to run for the Republican nomination in 2024 and sees this as a way to, you know, build strength and credibility with the base. You know, uh, is that cynical? Yeah, absolutely. Does he actually believe some of these things? Yes, it seems pretty clear that he does. Uh, you know, so voters in Florida, you know, weighed in on his his tenure and, and overwhelmingly approved, which I think sort of gave him a sense of invulnerability to some extent. So, you know, that is what it is. One of the fascinating things that I found about the book is, uh, or as I was doing the book, is if you look at the Census Bureau projections for what the United States is going to look like demographically in the year 2060, it looks very much like Florida. It has a much larger, older population. Mm-hmm. It has a much larger Hispanic population. That doesn't mean that America will politically look in 2060 the way Florida looks now, because obviously the old population in Florida now is much more heavily white than the old population will be in 2060. And the Hispanic population in Florida is, is somewhat anomalous. It has you know high population of Cuban-Americans, which is, tend to be more conservative. Uh, so it's, you know, it's certainly not one-to-one, but it is the case that if you want to get a forecast of demographically what the United States is going to look like, it's going to look like Florida. And so, you know, one shouldn't assume that the increased diversity of the United States is necessarily going to mean increased liberalization of our politics. Exactly. <laughs> no, it shouldn't. Uh, I would hope that, but it doesn't doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah. That, but economics, uh, culture, housing, housing right now, do you know Miami uh, they just said in the last couple of months has passed, I think, even New York as the most expensive housing market in the country. Mm. I couldn't afford to buy buy or rent anything here now. Again, another reason we're leaving, though, the main reason is DeSantis. Um, I, I don't uh, something's got to change. Um, the other point that you you make in the book is about wealth. Again, sheer size and scale of the baby boomers. Obviously, there's been a huge accumulation of wealth. So that you, uh, but but you're not saying that all old people are ne- necessarily wealthy because there are a lot of us still just struggling to get by um, yeah. because the safety net hasn't been as as much of a net as it, it could have been, I guess, or because of different things that happen along the way. There's still insecurity in terms of. Elderly, the uh, the older population for health care, for housing, for um, basic human needs that, um, you know, you hear the Republican Party screaming about the Social Security trust fund going broke. But the money is here, right? We have the money. It's just not in the right places. So there are a few things here, right? So the first is the wealth of the baby boom generation is the case that the the plurality of wealth, at least generationally divided in the United States, belongs to the baby boomers. But because there are so many baby boomers, the average baby boomer is no wealthier than the average anyone else. And so that also leads to some of this generational tension because there's, you know, young people are like, oh, the baby boomers have so much money. And the boomers are like, well, I don't have so much money. I don't know what you're talking about. Part of it, too, is that that wealth is tied up in housing and that it is seen as a storehouse of value and wealth for the long term for boomers 
who, you know, say, hey, when I retire, I'm going to be able to use this as part of my retirement nest day. Uh, but then that inspires them to want to keep the value of their house up. So, you know, they vote against things like building, you know, new apartment buildings down the street and things along those lines, which then reinforces this idea among young people that all oh, the boomers are standing in the way of affordable housing, right? Which is sort of true because it's just a bunch of individual decisions aimed at, you know, supporting the, their wealth that is, is currently stored in their houses, right? So, so there are all these ways in which these things intermingle. Um, one of the big questions that we have, you know, again, we've talked about the way in which as the boom came along, it forced America to contend with it. You know, first, they're all born. All of a sudden, you have this huge industry for babies, and then they all have to go to school. So you have to build a bunch of schools and get a bunch of teachers and accommodate that. That same pattern is now reaching retirement age. And as they uh, boomers are hitting age 65 and older, what does that mean? What does it mean for senior housing? What does it mean for our ability to care for seniors? So what does it mean for them? How long are they going to live? How, how much? How much? Did they do they have enough wealth stored in order to be able to take care of themselves through retirement? If not, what happens to them? What happens if they have a medical emergency? Do we have as an adequate safety net for for that? Those are the questions that have long been important for how we deal with the senior citizen population in the United States, but are becoming acutely important in the moment because so many more people are in the age range. Right. Uh and and I guess we we you know, we we continue doing what we're doing. Not what one thing we know is nothing happens very fast, right? All change right. happens incrementally and slowly. So any changes we make are going to happen slowly. We're, I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the near future just because I'm seeing how things unfolded over the last six or eight years or so. Hmm. Um, how do you feel? Are you confident that we'll get back on track or do you even think we're off track? Uh, I would answer that question like this. The first is I would say that one of the lessons from the book was I feel much less confident about making predictions than I might otherwise have, gotcha. you know, and that's based both in talking to people who do this for a living and in part, just, you know, I went back and looked at past predictions that people had made that turned out terribly. So I don't know. I will say that the 2022 election surprised me. I expected Republicans to do better than they did, um, which sort of upset my expectations in terms of, you know, and, you know, I feel like I track politics pretty closely, but mm -hmm. I, I wasn't expecting that election to look the way it did, which, you know, obviously shapes things. But I also have two little kids. And so I sort of have a, you know, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And so I must necessarily be optimistic, right? You know, I, I, I don't, I almost don't have this, the mental space to be pessimistic because I have to assume that my kids are going to be, you know, and I, you know, I hope, hopefully I'm doing work that, that helps make the world a better place in general. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of being like, ah, everything's going to fall to hell. Cause it's like, you know, like these jokes about, you know, I hope an asteroid hits our planet. Like I don't I want my kids to be okay. Right. Right. So right. I, just, I just, I just don't have that luxury. You know, you've got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. I have a 23-year-old and it's the same mm -hmm. thing. It's like, I, you know, yeah. I, I could just leave and say, thanks. It was a life. But I got a kid and I want her to have a good life and I want the, I right. want the planet to survive for her. I want social security and Medicare to be there for her. I want, right. you know, so, uh, that's why we keep fighting and moving forward. And it's important to know the history because if you don't learn from your mistakes, you repeat them. Sometimes even when you do know the mistakes, you repeat them anyway. Um, 
Philip Bump, the book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. It is fascinating. A lot of research, a lot of charts, a lot of uh, footnoted information here. In fact, you even, you, I, I love that you did this. You're using the mm. Internet Archive, which I've just mm. recently embraced for old old radio shows that I did years sure, ago. Um, and uh, you're, you're keeping archives of all your, the research basically for this book. T- tell us quickly about that. Yeah, so essentially the Internet Archive is a storehouse of the way the websites used to be. And so you can send a website to the Internet Archive. It'll basically capture all the files that were used to make the website and then keep them in perpetuity. And so what I did is I took all of my footnotes, all of my source materials, got the URL for them, put them in the Internet Archive, and then I also used uh, Bitly to shorten the URLs so that when you go to the footnotes, it's very easy if you want to check my sources you can very easily go, and they're all accompanied by, well, I'm not going to be able to see in here, but, you know, each one ends in bit.ly slash whatever. You just type that in. It's, you know, six characters, and then you get the actual source I used in the moment I used it, which I think will hopefully help people, you know, who want to dive a little deeper to do so and not have to worry about the website having gone away. That's awesome. I, I love it. Uh, pe- more people need to know about the Internet Archive because it's my um, old radio stations are archived there and old interviews and stuff. So it's Godzilla cool. movies. That's, God- my kids love it. Going <laughs> Godzilla movies. Yeah, it's the best. yeah, you can you can really get lost in there. You just you start can. going and it's that archive dot org for anybody who hasn't been there yet. Uh, Philip Bump, it was great meeting you. Thank you so much for joining us today. The book is fascinating. The aftermath, the Thank last you. days of the baby boom in the future of power in America. Thank you again. And um, uh, thanks for your work. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Philip Up, that, it, it's fascinating. I, I know, uh, look, I, I shy away from labels, and, uh, but, but sometimes, you know, there are generational differences. And I think, um, uh, you know, I do point fingers. I think the baby boomers did a lot of good. But in the later years, I think they fucked things up. And I think that's when, you know, the the younger generation comes into being. It's time to let them take over. Because you know what we wind up with if you let the baby boomers stay in charge? I love the poorly educated. That's what you get. And that's what's happening here in Florida. All right. You know, um, I started off the show. I wanted to end with Phil so I could go out with a song. Um, no, I'm not going to play Goodness Gracious. I'll get copyright violated. That's why I played a live version of that because I can't play the, uh, the, the, the version on the record. But I'm going to go to our friends, the Marsh family. You know how much I love the Marsh family. They're over there in the UK. And they did a song. This is actually an old American, not folks, I guess folk song. I don't know. I, I, I'm sadly, I don't have the description up here, but they posted, they recorded this song and they, they posted it because there was a, um, you know what, let me, let me read their description. I was able to pull it up. It, it is a, they, they did this in support of children's mental health awareness week in the UK spearheaded by, they say the wonderful charity organization at underscore place two number two b at underscore place to be so it is an american campfire tune is how they describe it by a canadian board hymnist ada blankhorn and j howard entwistle wonder if he's related to john probably not he says we've lightly adapted the last two lines because we're singing this in support of the children's mental health awareness week in the uk and i wanted to share it today because I've been struggling this week. I told you that. 
I'm struggling over the shooting anniversary. I'm struggling over the death of a friend. I'm struggling with a lot of stuff. And every now and then, you need to just remember to, you know, I could play Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, or, ah, and now I need to mute this. Oh, my goodness. No, I don't need to mute that. Unmute. Where's this music coming Okay, I don't know where that's coming from. Hold on, I got to mute something else because something is playing here on this computer. And why? Um, uh, you're muted. You're muted. <laughs> I don't know why, where this is coming from. Um, uh, bear with me. I'm going to play it. We may lose. We may lose um, uh, progressive voices in a minute before the song ends. But uh, it's still there. Damn it. Okay. Is oh I. Because the song is already playing. You know, so, oh, and I, I'm showing you the wrong screen here. Oh, my goodness. I, this is one of those. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready? Let's do it. Take it away, Marsh family. And you can sing along if you like. Here we go. There's a dark and a troubled side of life. But there's a bright and a sunny side too Though we meet with darkness and strife The sunny side we also made you Boom, boom, boom Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side Keep on the sunny side of life it will help us every day, it will brighten all the way, if we keep on the sunny side of life. The storm and its fury broke today, crushing hopes that we cherish so dear. The clouds and the storms will in time pass away, the sun again will shine bright and Marsh family, and you got to get the little doggy in there. Boo! I just saw, but you know what? Like. <laughs> the uh, you know that I think says it all. It's a way for an attitude check. Keep on the sunny side of life. Yeah, they are talented, aren't they? All right, with that, we're done. Uh, tomorrow's Thursday. Howie Klein will be here, and uh, we'll see what else the day brings us. I think I'm going to try to. Um, Take a few hours in the middle of the day with Allison, my daughter, and go to um, the beach while I still can. 
Uh, but we'll be here. I'll be here in time for the show. And uh, thank you for bearing with me, especially this week so far. It's just been crazy. I don't know what happened in the middle of that interview when the audio just went out. I told you I have gremlins, but we got it back. All right. And with that, I will post that. It wasn't that great. The, the Marsh family, they're just awesome. And yes, I, I had a hard time smiling this week. That put a smile on my face. And that's why I wanted to share it with you today. All right. With that, uh, we're done. I'll leave you with the news. Thank you for listening as usual, and I'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye. It's time for Nicole Sandler. What's news from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. The mass shooting epidemic in the United States seems to have reached a tipping point. Some survivors of mass shootings are finding that history repeats in the worst way possible. As we learned of the latest massacre, this time a gunman killing three students and critically injuring five others at Michigan State University on Monday, some students were reliving the horror. There are around 20 students enrolled at Michigan State who were attending Oxford High School, the scene of another mass shooting just over a year ago and at least one other student who lived through the Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre. One of the Oxford survivors, 18-year-old Emma Riddle, after texting her father in disbelief that this was happening again, tweeted, quote, 14 months ago, I had to evacuate from Oxford High School when a 15-year-old opened fire and killed four of my classmates and injured seven more. Tonight, I'm sitting under my desk at Michigan State University, once again texting everyone, I love you. When will this end? And then we saw this haunting message on TikTok from someone identified by her screen name as J-M-A-T-T-T-T. It is almost 1 a.m. and I am currently directly across the street from where the shootings at Michigan State occurred. I am 21 years old and this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through. 10 years and two months ago, I survived the Sandy Hook shooting. And when I was crouched in the corner in school in Newtown, Connecticut on 12, 14, 12, I was hunched in the corner with my classmates for so long that I actually got a PTSD fracture in my L4 and L5 in my right lower back. The fact that this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through is incomprehensible. My heart goes out to all the families and the friends of the victims of this Michigan State shooting. But we can no longer just provide love and prayers. It needs to be legislation. It needs to be action. It's not okay. We can no longer allow this to happen. We can no longer be complacent. I'll forever be Sandy Hook strong and forever be Spartan strong. Michigan officials on Tuesday identified the three students killed on Monday night. They were juniors Ariel Anderson and Alexandria Werner and sophomore Brian Frazier. They were 19, 20, and 20, respectively, and an aspiring pediatrician, a high school athlete studying forensics, and a business major who was president of Phi Delta Theta fraternity. Authorities identified the gunman. I won't say his name. They still say they had no idea what the shooter's motive was. He was 43 years old, a black man, and was found dead after the shooting, apparently from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. By the way, this shooter was charged with several gun-related offenses back in 2019. He got probation and was barred from possessing a gun until May of 2021. When will this end? 
Inflation slowed in January, but less than expected, according to the Consumer Price Index released Tuesday. Prices were up 6.4% in January compared with a year earlier, but down slightly from 6.5% in December. It was the seventh straight month with a slower year-over-year inflation rate since we reached a peak of 9.1% in June. I just wish they'd stop raising interest rates. So, Senator Dianne Feinstein, the oldest sitting U.S. senator, released a statement Tuesday announcing that she'd retire at the end of her term in 2024. Of course, this was just a formality as no one expected the 89-year-old to run again. And Democratic representatives Katie Porter and Adam Schiff have both already declared their candidacy. Well, Feinstein's statement, also posted to her official website, reads in part, quote, I am announcing today I will not run for re-election in 2024, but intend to accomplish as much for California as I can through the end of next year when my term ends. Okay, that's good, right? Well, Ross Story is reporting, quote, During a brief interview Tuesday afternoon with Ross Story on Capitol Hill, Feinstein said, She has not made an announcement about retiring from the Senate. Feinstein telling Raw Story just about an hour after her office released that statement, quote, oh, no, I'm not announcing anything. I will one day. And therein lies the problem. Moving on. It looks like the former guy is about to have some stuff happen. Apparently, the prosecutors are now seeking approval from a federal judge to invoke what is known as the crime fraud exception. That allows them to work around attorney-client privilege when they have reason to believe that legal advice or legal services have been used in furthering a crime. Hmm. The fact that prosecutors invoked the exception in a sealed motion to compel the testimony of Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran suggests that they believe Donald Trump or his allies might have used Mr. Corcoran's services in that way. This is relating to the probe into Trump's handling of classified documents. Stay tuned. More disturbing reports out of Russia, including one that says the government is operating a network of camps where it has thousands of Ukrainian children being held since the start of the war. The report contains disturbing new details about the extent of Moscow's efforts to relocate, re-educate and sometimes militarily train or forcibly adopt out Ukrainian children. These are actions that constitute war crimes and could provide evidence that Russia's actions amount to genocide. This report, compiled by the Conflict Observatory, which is backed by the U.S. State Department, found that more than 6,000 children, ranging in age from just months old to 17, have been in Russian custody at some point during the course of the nearly year-long war. Russia's embassy in Washington dismissed the report as, quote, absurd. Yeah, right. Well, Turkish President Erdogan said that over 35,000 people have died and more than 105,500 were injured in Turkey as a result of last week's earthquake, making it the deadliest such disaster since Turkey was founded 100 years ago. And almost 3,700 deaths have been confirmed in neighboring Syria, where relief efforts are virtually non-existent. Miraculously, rescuers on Tuesday pulled another nine survivors from the rubble of buildings that collapsed more than 200 hours earlier. Among the survivors, 17 and 21-year-old brothers and a man and a young woman in Syria. The death toll from the quakes surpassed 41,000 on Tuesday. 
And as more time passes since the original quake, aid groups say their focus is shifting from rescue to providing aid to tens of thousands of survivors left without shelter or food. Well, it's been a few days since the U.S. military shot down any unidentified flying objects from our skies. But the questions continue. Of course, Corinne Jean-Pierre was adamant that we did not shoot down E.T., but apparently the high commander at NORAD was a bit more equivocal in his response to this question from Helene Cooper of the New York Times. Because you still haven't been able to tell us what these things are that we are shooting out of the sky, that raises the question, have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials? And if so, why? Because that is what everyone is asking us right now. And thanks for the question, Helene. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figure that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America uh, with an attempt to identify it. I haven't ruled out anything at this point. Just saying. And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener supported, and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com and please click on that donate button.